When you bring your child home for the first time, you want a baby monitor you can trust. When you choose Stork, you choose technology trusted to monitor 10 million babies in hospitals every year. Stork continuously tracks your baby's pulse rate, oxygen saturation, and temperature. Visit MassimoStork.com to learn more. Stork, a revolutionary baby monitor, is born. Stork is not a medical device. Read and understand all product labeling. Massimo data on file. Hey there. Welcome to 7th Heaven, a lesbian recap. I'm Lindsay, and I'm joined by my co-host and real-life partner, Carling. We're diving into the 90s hit drama through today's lens. Get ready for our off-the-cuff commentary and peeling back the layers of the Camden family. We'll tackle everything from family rules, life lessons, and 90s fashion. Join us every week for a light-hearted queer perspective and a trip down memory lane. Whether you're a diehard fan or new to the show, this recap is for you. So find us anywhere you get your podcasts at 7th Heaven, a lesbian recap. The only thing that stressed me out at that time was knowing that if I was to die, I wouldn't have been happy with a mark I left on my life. Hey, Michelle. Hey, Carling. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? Good. Happy Pride. Happy Pride. Happy Calgary Pride. I can't believe I just glazed over it when making a recording schedule and I should be at the Pride Parade, but instead we're interviewing three people today. I know. It came out of nowhere, I feel. Yeah, I just wasn't, I don't know. I wasn't aware of it, wasn't ready for it. Yeah. But your oldest kiddo is there, which is so great. Yeah, my oldest kid is there with their big brother. I feel like whenever I say big brother, they're going to be like, what, you have another kid? It's from Big Brothers Big Sisters. So their big brother is super supportive and they went left this morning and they were actually in the parade. So I think they're having fun. I will fun. tell you, I don't like to go to parades, but put me in a parade and I have the time of my life. Yeah, I hate parades. I hate going to parades. I don't know something about the sound of the marching band, like the base of the marching band. Like it's too much for me to handle. Like it really, I don't know, it like overstimulates me. And I remember going to a couple parades with my kids and I'm like, why don't you just stand at the edge of the driveway and I'll walk back and forth and throw candy at you. That's pretty much <laughs> like all we need. So when I watch a parade, like I don't want to make eye contact with anybody in the parade. Right. And I feel like a bit embarrassed to just be staring at them. But that's the point of the parade. Yeah. And I don't like people pushing and shoving to get in. No. no. And then there's and always I... going to be like one kid who grabs all the candy or oh. like, yeah, I'm not a fan of parades, but yeah, I've been in a couple all, parades. Like... I've been in a couple parades. It's way more fun because you get to wave and walk and you have space and you're the one handing things out. And yeah, Yeah. I don't know that maybe that's a theater kid in me, but maybe. Yeah. You want all the attention. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, funny. Uh, So first day of school started this week. Yeah. My kids had their first day of school on Thursday. It was pretty good. We got to the school on time. We met the teachers. Because this, for Um, anybody just listening, this is a new school. New school for all the kids. And Um, going from Catholic to public. 
Yeah, so it's a big change and there's a lot of nerves. My little guy kept blinking and it was because he was trying not to cry, which broke my little heart. But they all had a really good day. The only problem was that my twin girl, Claire, was running and bailed like hard right before school started. So she scraped her face. She scraped her knees. She scraped her hands. It was like a whole thing. And so that really put a damper on the mood. But her teacher gave her a Band-Aid and that seemed to make things better. And you picked them up from school. So that was awesome. Yeah, it was so fun. I... Whenever I have to pick up a kid, it doesn't matter. Like, I've known your kids their whole lives. Yeah. But if I have to pick up a kid where there are a lot of kids, I get nervous that I won't be able to recognize them or find (laughs) them. Or, like, when the bell goes, it is like kicking an anthill. Oh, my God. Kids just are pouring out. Yeah. People come from out of nowhere. Yeah. Uh, So I first went and drove to the junior high where your oldest started grade eight. I was like, I wanted to be cool. Like, it's not cool having an adult come pick you up at a certain age. Right. And so I like texted them and was just like, hey, this is where I am. And then I was standing outside my car trying to look cool. First of all, junior high kids are awkward. And as all the kids started coming out, I was like, eh. I was like, I don't think we'd look like this in junior high. So funny looking. They're so So awkward, funny. Yeah. Yeah, But they made three new friends in their class on the very first day i know i love that so much they found the gay kids they were like i looked around and i went to the table that had the gayest looking kids (laughs) and i went there and i was like that's what you gotta do absolutely I think it's good. There was a lot of struggles last year at school, and this was definitely, I think, a good change for them to just be in a different environment and a little bit more accepting place and just feel a little bit better about who they are. Oh, that's so great. And then I went over to the elementary school. And I was standing with all the other adults and I was like, I feel like I'm not an adult in this group, but they like, kicked the anthill. All the kids came out and luckily your kids found me because I certainly did not see them right off the bat. Yeah, no, that's but good. That's good. your middle kid, Kate, was holding another girl's hand and I was like, hi, who's this kid? <laughs> and she's like, hi, we're best friends now. And I was like, this is great. Uh, sure. Yeah. She was like, can Kate come over for a play date? And I was like, do you have a grown up here? Did you meet her mom? No, I didn't meet her mom. I did see her the next morning at school, the kid, but I didn't see who she belonged to. Did she say her name? She did. And now I can't remember it again. Because I asked Kate after and she's like, I don't remember her name. And I was like, <laughs> oh, that's fair. You can be best friends without knowing somebody's name, I guess. Wyatt started a new school. Oh, yeah. They didn't even have a teacher for that class until the day before school started. There was an email from the principal being like, I've got irons in the fire. Don't worry. We'll have somebody. (laughs) So he got a teacher and he showed up and he was so nervous, but he already made a friend. But then, so he's taking the school bus for the first time. Uh He wanted his dad to drive him to school. And then we were like, yeah, and then you can just take the bus home. And he was the only one on the school bus on the way home. Oh, no. It was just him and the bus driver. (laughs) That's so funny. It was great, though. Olivia didn't start a new school, but started grade seven. Yeah. Lindsay drove past the bus stop. And I guess she like went over to the car and she was like, mom, what are you doing? Get out of here. Get out of here. Yeah. I don't want people to know I have a mom who cares. I know. Yeah. So embarrassing. embarrassing. Yeah. (laughs) So funny. Seems like everybody survived and then everybody's back next week and you're off for a whole week. 
I am awful next week, except I, it, it's good and bad. Like I gypped myself because I only really have three and a half days at home without the kids because wait, we have to say that. We have to re-say that. You can't say gypped. Why? It's offensive because it comes from the term gypsied, which oh. is like a class of people, yeah, a culture yeah, yeah. of people. Yeah. And they're like this the stereotype is that they're like cheap or scammy. Swindlers. Oh yeah. Swindlers. Okay. Okay. No better, do better. So I have been duped. Kind of. I did it to myself. Scammed? I just didn't I just didn't look at the schedule better. Mm. I'm glad that I have this week off, but my kids also have Monday off and then they have half Friday. So I have three and a half days really to just do all the things that I need to do, which is fine. Better than being at work. It'll be good. This weekend is like crazy busy because I've got my 11 year old, 11 year old turned 11 yesterday, Saturday. My twins turned six today. We have their party tomorrow. So the beginning of September is always just crazy for us with school and birthdays and all of that. I feel so bad. I booked us three interviews today. Yeah. I'm Way so to care sorry. about my kids' birthdays. God. I know. I was like, birthday schmerz day. No, it's good, though, because like we open their presents in the morning, and now they're like occupied with their gifts. So oh, okay. I, I can record. So it's a have, I've had minimal interruptions so far. Okay, good. Yeah. One thing that we did not talk enough about last time is our Patreon. Yes. What's that? We, a Patreon is a, subs- a monthly subscription as a way to support the work that we do. And as a thank you, we give you two bonus episodes every single month. Mm-hmm. And for our top tier, we also do a video episode every month, and it's called Wet Wednesdays. It because is that's unfortunately funny to say. called Wet Wednesdays. I'm so sorry, but um, it's so funny. It just stuck. And honestly, it's so fun. We've done three recordings so far. Yeah. And they've all been super fun. Yeah. It's just an extra way to get more content from us. Also, the top two tiers, you get our Patreon episodes a day early. So yep. another little bonus about joining the Patreon. We have like over 60 episodes. We have videos. We do giveaways. We ask for your opinions on episodes that we should cover. It is really fun. So we're loosey goosey over there. It's <laughs> it's true. We do swear a lot over there. We do. If you like what you're hearing and you want to support the work that we do and you have capacity and you oh. always remind people, I'm always impressed. You remind people that like you could sign up for one month, listen, yeah. and then maybe take a couple months off. Totally. And then come back. It's very fluid. Because as soon as you sign up, you get all that back catalog. You don't hmm. start from where you are. So you can sign up for a month, binge your little heart out, and then take a break for a couple months, whatever works for your finances. I follow a lot of Patreons and I do that as well. That's amazing. I think so too. Do you know how I'm a little delayed in catching on to things that are trendy? I do. I do know that. I just placed my first click and collect grocery order. Oh my God. I feel like I'm a pioneer of the click and collect. <laughs> With online shopping, you were a pioneer. I was very Absolutely. late to the game. Absolutely. Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, yeah. like all the things. I'm TikTok, but I'm really nervous that I'm going to go there and not know what to do or that they're going to give me somebody else's groceries or... <laughs> I'll do it wrong. No, it's a very fluid process. It's pretty easy. You just get there. You call them. You say, I'm here. This is my spot. 
They bring you your groceries. I think in the beginning, there were a lot of issues with a lot of substitutions. I remember for a long time there, there was like, oh, we're out of this, we're out of that. I'm like, I could walk into that store right now and find it. I know you're not out of that. Or right. substituted one time hamburger buns for hot dog buns. I'm like, I don't know if you know the shape here, but it's not the same. But I've been doing it for, well, since before the twins were born. So over six years. Oh my and God. I didn't even know it's been around that long. Oh yeah. It just started a couple months before the twins were born. And I remember thinking like, this is a game changer. Oh, that's amazing. It's amazing. Big fan. I may call you while I'm there just for moral support. Well, I think that you should be vlogging your entire experience. (laughs) My first click and click. And share it with the class. Yeah. I might. Knowing you, something will go awry. Oh, I'm very awkward. (laughs) I'm very awkward. You're going to try to help. But then it's going to be weird or you're just going to yeah. like most people sit in their car. You'll probably get out and stand there and watch them. A hundred percent. Oh, boy. Should we get into this week's episode? Absolutely, we should. So let us know what you think. Yeah. I feel like we also don't tell people enough. It means the world to us if you leave us a five star review. Absolutely. Tell us what you like about the show and yeah, give us feedback. We love feedback. Okay, let's get into it. Okay. Okay, bye. Bye. Hello, Brandon. Hi, guys. How are you? I am doing wonderful. How are you both? Yeah, good. We're surviving a heat wave in calgary right now yeah that's that must be nice when it's hot here in ottawa too but it's just been cloudy and rainy like all week mm. so yeah. uh, all month i guess it's a it's been a weird summer for us yeah. yeah we are so excited to chat with you so thank you so much for being with us today no thanks for having me i think a lot of people on tiktok are afraid to kind of reach out to people when they see the these stories i i love it obviously i've been fortunate enough to have a lot of people who've kind of reached out to me and just connected like people with their own life altering traumas, their own different stories. And it's one of the greatest gifts I think I could have ever asked for is having the ability to connect with all these, I think really cool people I never would have met otherwise. So um, if anybody's listening to this and wants to connect, send me a message because I love which I love that you guys reached out. I love when everybody reaches out and I'm pretty bad with my phone sometimes, but I, I try to get back as, as much as I can, even if it's in a, a week or two weeks when I get yeah. the chance. So yeah, it's oh. funny. I was just thinking that actually 20 years ago, if this had happened to you, you wouldn't be able to really get your message out there unless you were invited to like a school to talk at an assembly. So it is such a powerful tool to have social media that you can just get to so many people yeah. all over the world in like a split second and share what you've been through. So it's well, it's cool too. I think like for me, it's cool to be able to share my story, but it's also cool to be able to hear other people's stories. Mm-hmm. My unique case, I really fed off of a lot of mentors who'd been through similar things to me just a year, months, year, whatever in advance. So they were further along in the recovery process and I kind of got to pick their brains yeah. and I never would have known these people even existed had it not been for social media. So yeah, for right. me, I'm just trying to pay it back now in the same ways that these kind of people who inspired me did and changed my life, right? So Mm -hmm. it's a beautiful tool, not just to get your message out there, but also to, I think, find some purpose in what you're going through and change some other lives as well. Absolutely. Yeah. I would love it if you could introduce yourself, maybe tell us a little bit about who you are, and then we'll get into your story. 
Sure. So my name is Brandon Peacock, like the bird. I grew up in Ottawa, Canada. I've been here my whole life. It's a pretty nice like, kind of government town. Both my parents worked. My mom was a part-time worker. My dad worked a more blue collar role. So I was always a pretty middle-class kid. Grew up in the suburbs, played sports, all of that good stuff. Lived a pretty average Canadian life that you would say. Mm-hmm. Went to school for business law, enjoyed it. And then realized I only liked the business component, hated the law component. So started working in the corporate world right out of school and then got shot and everything kind of changed. So um, there's tons of stuff in my life I could talk about, but I mean, that doesn't really provide that much value to people sometimes. Yeah. That's the synopsis, I guess, the very wow. quick notes. Wow. And like we were saying before we officially started, when we first heard your story, we were shocked that this happened in Canada to a Canadian. We just have this like perception that this is something that happened in America. So yeah. Can you tell us like what happened? Yeah. So first we could talk about that a little bit later too. I think it happens more in Canada than a lot of people here. And there's reasons for that. Sometimes it doesn't come out in the media. A lot of times the situations are just a little bit different in the States. Right. And I think our gun laws are so much stricter. There's less of a a narrative to run with, but it Mm -hmm. does happen. There's a lot of there's a rise, I think, in, in gang-specific violence. And the unfortunate reality is there's oftentimes innocent bystanders who become collateral to that. So yeah. that's my case. And just in my city, actually, of Ottawa, I worked with another kid who went through the same exact thing a year later. Wow. Um, and in, in London, Ontario, Toronto is getting a little bit worse for it. But there is definitely reasons why that stuff doesn't come out. And I understand them. Typically, gang-related violence they don't release any names to the media stories. So when people hear about it, they just anticipate gang-related shooting, two people hit, they just assume it's all gang members who are impacted. And they don't want to share the information because they don't want you to have any affiliation. So they don't want people seeing your name and maybe coming after you, whatever. So those stories don't really get out there, but they happen a lot more than you would anticipate. Wow, Um, that's interesting. Yeah, it's just something that no one really thinks about. And I never would have in a million years thought about, um, right? I I remember there was kind of a good amount of outrage, I think, from my friends as everything happened, because the initial story that was published basically made me look like a gang member. It didn't have my name. It didn't have anything. It's just time, date of the shooting and 23 year old in critical condition, basically like a three line story. It's just, it happens every day. You see them, you just pass over them. It's just like, oh, well, I guess that's just what's happening in the bad part of town today. And my friends actually got this story changed funny enough. I didn't particularly care that much, but they were a little offended by it. So they, they reached out and they're like, Hey, like this kid's not in a gang. This is just a, a regular everyday kid you guys got to highlight this. Yeah. So anyways, it happens more than you think, but to get into my story. So basically what ended up happening is I was walking in to get a haircut after a typical day of work. So 5.45 PM, I was walking in the door to the barbershop. And at this time it was COVID protocol. So there was a woman who was holding the door open for me because I couldn't touch the door handle. This was about three or four months into the pandemic. And I'm walking, I'm about 10 meters from the door. And the target of the shooting is sitting on a bench outside of the barbershop that I'm going into. He owns the neighboring store, I guess, something like that. I really don't know too much of the case details, but obviously this I know because I remember it. And this car pulls up and begins to open fire at this guy. He sprints in the door that's being held open for me to get away because he sees it coming at first. So now it's me and the woman who are hold- who's holding the door open for me left at the back of the pile with bullets flying at us. No. So I was lucky enough to be, I'm 6'2", so she's about 5'4", 
And I was lucky enough to just be able to launch the two of us in, right? Just because I had the bigger frame, we're both going to the same spot anyways, and launch both of us in. I got hit three times. So once in the left leg, once in the right femoral artery, which is a bad spot to get shot. Um, yeah. the bleed out, I, I believe it's the second or third highest death rate for a shooting. It's actually, I, I believe a higher rate than getting hit in the head just because the bleed out so high, like it had yeah. it been four minutes and 30 seconds of me laying on the ground without a tourniquet on my leg, I wouldn't survive. Wow. Um, and then the third bullet hit me in the chest. So that one, it, I must've hit me when I was bent over because it came in my lower shoulder blade and came out just below my shoulder. So it somehow oh. missed my heart and only bruised my lungs, but broke all my ribs. But oh I mean, gosh. like broken ribs is nothing. Then an injury yeah. like that, like I've played sports, like you break ribs, it happens. It's, yeah. it's annoying because you can't breathe that well, but it's, <laughs> you, I would have been out of the hospital the next day. But the femoral artery gunshot was a major problem. And I was lying on the floor, bleeding out, thinking, thinking about life, everything. There's lots of stuff that was going through my head. And an officer who happens to be across the street getting a coffee at a Tim Hortons runs across the street, gets the call in, sprints like directly basically through traffic to the shop about 200 meters away and gets a tourniquet on my leg in four minutes stops the bleed out saves my life so that's the wow, only reason i'm here today is thanks to that man and yeah so it's that's the shooting itself it's a it's a pretty crazy story i think but no, it's kidding. an amazing story as well you don't ever like how do you even react in that short amount of time to know it's gonna sound crazy i'll tell you how i reacted and i feel like i probably reacted different than most people would i was like not panicked at all it was the weirdest thing because i feel like you hear something like this happens and you're like wow like this kid must have been like horrified he's gonna die i was like yeah the only thing that stressed me out at that time was knowing that if i was to die i wouldn't have been happy with a mark i left on my life so i still had a lot of goals i wanted to accomplish i had a lot of things that i really wanted to chase and that kind of kept me motivated. But I, I remember the first things I was thinking about when I was laying on that ground, What it wasn't like, this is so terrible. I can't believe what just happened to me. It wasn't like fear. It was, okay, you know what? When I get back from this, when I'm in the hospital recovering, I'm going to get some time off work. I, I'm, there's some books I wanted to read for a while. There's some projects I wanted to work on. And that's going to sound crazy. But it was like, <laughs> right from the hop, it wasn't if I get back, it wasn't, there was no doubts. It was this is going to be great because I'm going to have a little bit of free time that I didn't think I, I had before. This is no different to me than like break, uh, breaking my leg yeah, at this point. Yeah. And it's to me, it was fantastic. It was like a blessing. It was like, okay, whatever. Like this sucks, but what's next? And then everyone around me is freaking out. Like the woman who's in there is we're like, I don't know, trying to compress my wounds and save my life. And I'm just thinking, I'm like, okay, what's next? What do we do when we get through this? I'm already wow. at step five in the recovery yeah. process mm -hmm. right on that spot. And I remember the woman who was in there with me was like 100% certain I was going to die. We've talked mm -hmm. about this after she did not think there was a chance in hell that I made it through. So she dial she gives me the phone and she dials my mom. So I call my oh mom my as God. I'm bleeding out on the ground. And yeah. I'm just like, Hey mom, it's going to sound crazy. I got shot. Don't worry about it. I'm going to be fine. But I, I just wanted you to hear it from me before you heard it from ever, like anybody else. Right. Yeah. And so now like my mom's obviously freaking out and the, mm -hmm. the cops get in at that point, they take the phone away from me. So I didn't hear her response. I didn't hear anything other than the, the get that message out. And so I don't, now my mom's freaking out. My family's kind of freaking out. They obviously can't hear from me. I don't have my cell phone. I'm being rushed into surgery. It's COVID protocol too. So they wouldn't let anyone in the hospital. Yeah. There's all these crazy kind of like factors, but from the start, I was just so cool collected. I was like, okay, I'm going to be, I'm going to be fine. Even though 
everyone around me was like, this kid is not going to be fine. Yeah. Yeah. How old Um, were you when this happened? 23. And do you think you, did you just not understand the gravity of the situation or was it just, nope, there's no other option. This is what I need to do. I think I I understood the gravity for sure. Like immediately I was like, well, you know, this is a big problem. I knew that it was bad, but in my eyes, I love going through hard times. And I've been like that since I was a kid. There's just something about it. That is what gets, gets me up. It fires me up and inspires me. That's what I love to do. So when I was on that ground bleeding out, it was, you know, this is just going to be a hard, this is a massive competitive advantage that I now have in my life. Cause this is like one of the craziest stories, like right off the hop, I knew that. So it was kind of like, you know what, if I die, if I don't make it, that's fine, whatever. But I need to start planning. Like I do if like I'm going to make it right. And it was right from that moment that I recognized, like I knew how hard it was going to be. And it was even a lot harder than I anticipated at that exact moment, for sure. Because there's a lot of things that come at you you don't anticipate. But from that moment, I think my attitude was pretty positive. I I honestly think that's what got me through the night. Because had I passed out, had I closed my eyes for a little bit too long, I was dead. If I had given in, I was told, like, there's no way this kid's coming back. So they basically had to help keep me awake the entire night. And I had to stay dialed in for two hours. The adrenaline started to wear off too. You're you're drained. Like, it's hard to explain. But when you lose that much blood, like, you you are just out of energy. Your battery's running at zero. It's just continuing to push through. And for me, knowing that I was going to make the most of this situation and reminding myself that all night was really what pushed me through. I was incredibly lucky in a lot of ways, but I think right off the hop, I I was never once, I think, stressed about it, never upset, never really felt the victim to the circumstance. It was more like, what a beautiful blessing that I've been given. What's next? Yeah. Um, So yeah, it it was weird for sure though. Did you have people trying to bring you down or give you a reality check and dampen your positivity? No, they did it. The medical team, the paramedics, everybody involved, I think did a fantastic job. And you could tell it was very intense for them. Like Mm -hmm. they cleared out an entire floor at the hospital. Like it was on lockdown. I was right at the shift turnover too. So I had every surgeon that you could think of on that case. (laughs) Cause there was the surgeons that just finished their shifts and the surgeons that were just coming in. There was like I, at certain points, probably 15 people in my hospital room wow. prepping me for surgery, going through everything. And they were pretty intense. But there was also in that grouping, people who would try to keep me at ease. And my dad did manage to get into the hospital. So basically, he just showed up. They're like, you can't come in. And he's like, I, I don't care. Like, I'm coming yeah. in. And I guess someone because yeah. they couldn't release my information because it was all gang related incidents. Yeah. They can't tell anybody who you are. So my dad only knew about my shooting because of the call showed up and it was like basically forced his way in one of the doctors found out and he's like yeah like this kid might die he's (laughs) like he he, his dad can come see him in case he dies type thing yeah my mom they were a hard stance so she was about 45 minutes away at her cottage and she was going to drive in and they were a hard stance like she will not get in but i got to see my dad and he really filled that role of the positive influence as I started to taper off a little bit. Cause as as positive as I was, when you're, when your gas tanks at completely empty, you're starting to lose it a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I remember he he walked in and it was a relief. I think the first thing I said, I laughed at him. I was like, man, like you got to get some Gatorades for me in the morning. Like I need these electrolytes (laughs) or something. And like my brain is at one tenth capacity, zero tenths. Probably I'm it's hard to explain. Like my arms were totally numb. Like it's, if you've ever done like an athletic challenge that is just incredibly intense it's that times a hundred yeah but yeah so having him show up 
it really put me at ease. And funny enough, we didn't talk a whole lot in there, but we didn't really need to. Like just having yeah. him by my side to remind me, like, it's good. Like, you're going to be fine. This is, yeah. if this happened to anybody, thank God it happened to you because yeah. you're going to get through it. Like we know this. And it reinforced, I think, that confidence that I had already felt. And it really allowed me to stay positive through everything. And there was also another point to me and him talking was once I started to taper off a little bit, I, I remember right before I was about to go into surgery, I kind of looked at him. And the last thing he said to me before surgery was how you feeling? It was a check-in. He wanted to just probably for himself, right? Like he wants yeah. to see how I'm doing because he wants to get a feel like doctors have told him I got a 50-50 shot to make it through the night. And even if I do, I'm probably losing my right leg. Like they'd prepared him for that. And so now he's, I think, not showing it to me, but at the end, he's, you know, a little stressed, right? Like his, yeah. Yeah. his son might not ever see him again. He's like, how are you feeling? I'm like, man, you know what? It's really starting to hurt. Like at that point, my adrenaline is worn off. I'm out of any sort of energy I have. I'm fully as completely dehydrated as you can be. And I remember looking at him and I was just like, it's bad. Like I'm, this is terrible kind of thing. And he looks at me, he's like, what do you mean? I'm like, my leg hurts so much. Like it's in so much pain. He looks back at me, just smiles. He's like, that's amazing news. I'm like, what are you talking about? It's like, if you've got pain in your leg, buddy, you still got a leg, right? right? Like you should be counting your blessings that you can feel that pain. Because if you couldn't wiggle those toes, if you couldn't yeah. feel that just in 20 out of 10 pain in your leg, it's gone. And yeah, at that yeah. moment, like every, like that, it's the weirdest thing. The situation to me was life-changing, but that moment itself has changed. Like the way I live my life every day. Um, wow. It just, it fully switched up my relationship, not just with pain, but with struggle. And I already had a vested enjoyment for going through hard times. But at that moment, it really all just clicked. Like everything in my life that I thought I appreciated just clicked in even more. Yeah. So, you know, it changed my life. And then I went into surgery and woke up the next morning and was just ready to get after it. <laughs> wow. And did you, was there any point that police or doctors didn't know that you were involved in the gang? Was it assumed um, from the beginning that you were, or was it obvious that you were? So it was assumed from the start. And it, when anything like that happens, the likelihood of being involved in a gang shooting without actually being a representative in a gang is pretty low. They, they definitely off the hop questioned me as though I was involved. That's why they took the phone. They didn't know who I was right. on the phone with. They didn't know who I was calling, what I was saying. So they took the phone. They did question me for sure off the start and in the ambulance, but I believe it became pretty apparent pretty quickly that I had no involvement. And so although they questioned me, I think when they realized that it was like life or death for me, they just let it go a little bit. And then they came back, they questioned me the next morning, but it, it was pretty straightforward. It was do yeah. you know this? Do you know this? I'm like, I don't know anything. And there's also witnesses, right? Like the, yeah. the people who work at the shop were like, yeah, like this kid's on our schedule. This is, this is appointment slot, all these things. So it kind of fell into place. And I will say the police, I understand why they did what they did because they want to make sure they're getting as much information. And they were like incredibly helpful in my recovery. And a lot of them went out of their ways to, I think, follow up with me too, which was it's sometimes the stories you don't hear and yeah. these guys are coming out of their way to, they were a part of the, the night that changed my life. And they're coming out of their way to say like, how are you doing? Like, how are you recovering? Like, how is your physical recovery, but also how is your psychological recovery? Right. Yeah. They're like, we get it. We know how hard those things are. How do you feel, man? And I got really lucky. So they definitely, I think off the hop assumed that I was involved, but as they kind of started to assess the situation, were more like they were more helpful than anything, which was really nice. 
Was anybody else injured during? So the... I believe the target was hit once, but I honestly didn't really follow up with it too much. Yeah. It, if I just saw that in a news article and it was non-life-threatening, right. however he got hit. And so your recovery in the hospital, how long was that? So I was in the hospital for about 10 days, which really That's isn't it. that much, but wow. I really forced my way out of there. It, the hospital that I was at, the Ottawa Civic, is a top-tier trauma center in, in the Canadian public healthcare system. They are like absolutely phenomenal, probably one of the best in the country, which is, again, bodes really well for me keeping my leg. Yeah. But it's hot. There's no AC. I was in a room with two roommates as of day three. So they wouldn't, because it was the pandemic, they wouldn't let me pay additional fee for my own room. Wow. Um, my insurance provider like worked a solid job at the time. My insurance provider was going to cover as much, as much as I needed type thing. And I was really desperate to get that solo room and they wouldn't give it to me because of capacity restrictions. Mm -hmm. I was like extremely weak. I barely ate for, I want to say like eight, nine, 10. I barely ate actually when I was home, wow. barely ate for a month. I was down probably like 20 pounds in weight. I couldn't really go to the bathroom or anything. I was just like beat. And I was in there for 10 days and they wouldn't let me leave until I could walk up a set of two stairs with a walker or with yeah. crutches, but walk up a set of two stairs and kind of check, check all the boxes from the doctors. But I hadn't slept in seven days. So once I started having roommates, the two roommates I had were both having like psychological breakdowns. I don't oh, know what no. it was, but they were like screaming all night, every night. They were super loud all day too. Like they, they didn't stop ever. And it was about... 35 degrees Celsius at the time, just oh boiling God. hot outside with no AC. So I was just sweating buckets every and like losing even more weight than just yeah. getting like way worse. And I hadn't slept. Like I was running on three hours sleep every night, which is like brutal when you're trying to recover from these things. Mm -hmm. And as positive as I was, it, it was definitely taking a toll on me. You're starting to get almost like hallucinations when you're sleeping yeah. that little. So I remember walking down the hall and up the two stairs that I had to walk up was like the hardest challenge in my life to date. Like it's I've ran a marathon a year after I've been through intense physio. I've done a lot of stuff. And those two stairs were like the most daunting, like difficult challenge I've ever done. Yeah. But I did it. I got out of that hospital that same afternoon. I guess that was day wow. 10. Then I, I walked those two stairs, got back. All of my doctors had signed off my request to leave because they knew like I hadn't slept. They knew how bad I was. And they're just like, you just got to bring him in like once a day. Like it was like, I was out, but I was going to be back every day. I was just going to yeah. be able to sleep at my home. And my parents set up a kind of like a bed bedroom space for me on the ground level of our home in the garage almost, but I, I couldn't <laughs> walk up steps. Yeah, I forced those two steps. But when I got home, my dad just threw me over his shoulders, threw me in a bed. And then I stayed in that bed for seven days. So oh, I yeah. was... Wow. in like home care, basically yeah. at the hot, like at home instead of the hospital. So I could sleep. But yeah. It, the two steps was really challenging. We had to get sign offs from every doctor. And the only person who didn't sign me off funny enough was my, I, what is it? Psycho, my social worker wow. didn't sign me off and the social worker. And I am so pro psychotherapy. I, it's something my charity covers. It's something I really care about, but she didn't sign me off because she kept telling me about like, the victim kind of counseling programs and all these things. And I was like, look, like I get it. I don't need that right now. I don't how to, and that's to say like, I had a great community around me. I had a lot of people too, who reached out and were coddled me a little bit. Like, look, like I get it. I get how difficult this is. I, I understand. I just like, I'm not there yet. Need to just focus entirely on my kind of rehab. I can't talk to these specialists right now. I'm talking to, in my network, I had a couple of friends who'd been through some real serious traumas and I spoke with them every day, like probably 50 to 100 messages sent back and forth each every day. Like I had my own kind of little 
circle of like survivors that was providing me the same sort of guidance. Anyways, long story short, the social worker didn't sign off, but physio signed off the last check. And one of my doctors was like, all right, whatever, get out of here kind of thing. You need to sleep. So I got out of the hospital, got home and it expedited my recovery tremendously. The first week of being home, I couldn't, I couldn't really do much because I, A, I couldn't walk. I couldn't stand on either, either of my legs really, but B, I still had really big open wounds because they had to do a fasciotomy on my right leg to, I guess, limit the swelling because I have bigger calves. So when the blood started to swell up and there was not a lot of like area for expansion, it was about to like blow my leg up. Oh my <laughs> so they God. had to do massive slits basically on both sides and they had to do what's called a femoral bypass surgery. So they took the saphenous vein out of my left leg, put it in my right leg to replace my artery. So all that to say, I've got massive open wounds on both legs, like everywhere. So I was bedridden for about a week. And then the second I got approval to start physio, one of my best friends, a physiotherapist, this was probably about 15 days after everything where I actually just started just getting crazy with it. Like aggressive physio where I can barely move my leg and he's physically just taking my leg and bending it behind my head. Yeah. Um, my gosh. <laughs> but it was a blessing. Like getting out of that hospital, I, I rambled a little bit there, but getting out of the hospital was the most beneficial thing that I could have ever asked for in my recovery. Mm-hmm. Cause it changed up everything. Like my quality of care went up a hundred X and it, yeah. it probably put me like months ahead right off that, um, in yeah. my recovery. And did you have to call your work and be like, Hey, I'm not going to be in tomorrow because (laughs) I got shot. So the work one is actually like hilarious. So I didn't have my phone when I woke up the morning after, but I did have a hospital iPad and I didn't like my parents came and visited me. So they were the first people I reached out to through somebody else. So I didn't actually message them myself. Someone just said, Hey, we'll get them. And they both got to see me the morning after, which is nice. The second person I reached out to, because I'm I'm a millennial, I don't know any of my friends' phone numbers off, <laughs> yeah. off heart. Like I, yeah, yeah. I don't know any of that stuff. So I have this iPad with only FaceTime access through emails. And so I email one of my colleagues who I was a really good friend with at the time. I'm like, hey man, what's your cell number? I'm going to FaceTime you. I got shot last night. Or like just something <laughs> crazy. Like this like literally one liner and he has no, he thinks I'm messing with him. Like yeah, he has yeah, no yeah. idea what to expect. And I FaceTime, I'm like hooked up to tubes everywhere. Like I've got a breathing, I'm ba- I'm basically like in one out of a hundred shape. If you yeah. saw one of your friends FaceTime you like this, you'd be like, man, like this guy just went through like a head on collision, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And so he's in the office. He's about to walk into a performance review, funny enough. <laughs> and he gets this FaceTime from me. And he just looks like he saw a ghost. And in my mind, I'm like, this is, I'm alive, man. Like, this is great. Like I'm telling yeah. the story. He's like, everyone's just, fun. he's the first one to find out. And he like, looks, he just got passed through by a ghost. There's no emotion in his eyes, his face, like he's disoriented. So he got the message out to work and then work emailed me and like they emailed my mom, I guess. And they all took care of everything, but they were actually like, my employer was the first person I reached out to. Not necessarily out of fear that I wasn't going to be there. Obviously that wasn't going to be a big deal, but just because it it was convenient because I knew the email of one of my good friends who worked there. And then slowly the news started getting out and everybody found out that day. That's so crazy. I wanted to touch a little bit on what you were saying about the social worker in the hospital. I think it's interesting because I think a lot, she's probably going by her protocol and he needs to make sure that he's doing these things. Right. But what you said, it's not one size fits all when it comes to recovery, especially with your mental health. We're so pro therapy over here, but. Them too, for what it's worth. Like a hundred percent. Absolutely. Pro. But it's not 
always the time. Like you, you said, you needed to sleep. You needed to recover. You needed to do physio. And then you can deal with that. Like I said, was I had a couple mentors, but one in particular who was a good friend of not, he actually wasn't a friend of mine before, funny enough. He just was a mutual through some connections that I had who ended up being put in a coma for about 10 days after being hit by in a motor vehicle pedestrian accident on Canada Day in Ottawa. And so he was told that he was never going to mentally recover. He was going to have severe brain damage for the rest of his life. And then a year and a half later, he played, he made his college basketball debut. So he did some incredible things and he reached out to me and I had, I was very lucky, I think to have a great network in Ottawa, like Ottawa, probably similar to Calgary, honestly, is a big, small town, like everybody knows everybody. So when my, like when everything happened with me, I had hundreds, maybe thousands of people reach out and you can't really get back to everybody. But I had this one message that kind of stuck out where it's, I get what you're going through. You're going to have a hundred people who are telling you they feel bad for you and to take your time and to process things. I'm here to tell you, don't do that. He reached out. He's like, my biggest regret in my recovery is I sat back and I I really played the victim for a while. And all it did was delay my process. And I heard that off the hop and we talked every day and I was going through it. Like it's people, because I was so motivated off the bat, people all just assumed I I was fine. And I I really presented myself in that way. I was going through a lot, trying to figure out, like understand what had happened to me, how my life was going to be different forever. And at that point, I didn't know if I was going to walk properly again. I didn't know if I was going to be back to sports ever. I had no idea. So for me, having those mentors was tremendous because it was someone who could actually put me in my place. And that's the unfortunate problem with a lot of therapists. It's funny, the guy I was talking about actually is going to school for psychology, wants to be a therapist to help out other trauma survivors. So he is a big inspiration of mine. Having mentors who've been in the space, who've who've lived it, at least in my unique case, helped me a hundred X what any psychotherapist could have at that time or any professional with a piece of paper that says that they understand that stuff. Cause I needed to know somebody who had been through the same stuff and gotten to a point where they were living a better life because of it. And that's what I needed. So when it came to the therapy, like I already had the thing that I thought was the most beneficial recovery tool. And I only had so much bandwidth to listen to somebody or talk to somebody or really put my focus and attention into somebody's message So I had that from him. So I see the benefit, especially for people who might not have as strong of a community. And I think always having that resource to talk to and outlet is important. And that's why I try to get my story out there too, because I have a ton of people who reach out to me who are going through my process X amount of months, years. Like I was, everything happened two years ago for me. But if someone's going through that right now, they're not where I'm at two years later. So I try to, that's why I started my charity. That's why my message is out there to do what, he, Michael was able to do for me to other individuals. So I I think therapy is incredibly important. And I think a lot of people would benefit from it. It's not necessarily something that I personally benefited from, although I did it, but I also was really fortunate to have basically therapist in my life. Right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so especially for those who might not have the same incredibly fortunate bounces that I had in terms of having those resources and people I always recommend it. I think it's always great. But with the kids that I work with now, I really try to be there for them, like a coach combination, right? I'll try, I'll re- reinsure them that their feelings and emotions and hardships they go through are valid, but also remind them like, Hey man, even if it is valid, I don't want you to just sit here and really waste your life. Like this incredible gift that you have, 
because you're feeling shitty about what you went through, right? Like I, yeah. I know how real it is, but you will never actually get over this trauma that you've been through unless you start putting in the work. Cause as much as everybody else wants to help you, you're the only one who really controls your story at the end of the day, yeah. your response. So sometimes it's the therapists are good, but I think having someone who really gets it in your corner is the most beneficial thing that, that any trauma survivor across the board could have. I thought it was really interesting. The one TikTok video that Carling had showed me, you were talking about your perspective of as you were going through life or death, you're thinking about all these things and you're thinking, and you want other people to feel that, but you don't want them to go through what you went through. But it is a really interesting perspective to have after you've been through trauma. It's funny. I talked with my parents actually about that exact sentiment today, because for me, I think my ultimate life goal at this point is to be able to work full-time on growing my charity because I see the benefit to it. And I've seen firsthand how many people need the resources that we're trying to give out that don't have it. But in order for me to grow it to that point, like I got to be spending all my time doing it. Yeah. I'm working a day job right now to pay the bills, obviously. But I think my grandpa, he had a heart attack, I think about a year ago, his whole perspective on life changed. Having that near death experience, he looks, he's like, I wish I could go back and do some things differently. I wish I could go back and maybe take more risks, not just work that nine to five that he did for his whole life. And it, yeah. it sounds silly. It's hard for me to explain that to my parents because yeah. they've never really been through it, but right. you get reminded how beautiful of a gift life is when you almost lose it. So you hit it on the head. I wish that everybody could go through what I went through and have the proper resources to be able to take on the perspectives that that we do. Because the unfortunate yeah. reality is some people don't. And yeah. it breaks my heart. That's it. Maybe it's survivor's guilt. I don't know. But because I've seen the incredible things that can be done with the right resources, the right team, the right attitude, I really want to do my best to manufacture that for as many kind of survivors of trauma as I can, if that yeah, makes sense, and, and give absolutely. them the same kind of benefits that, that we've been able to take out of these like terrible situations. And yeah. I think I've been incredibly fortunate to have similar experiences in, in my unique recovery process where there's one guy, his name's Tyrone. He reached out to me on TikTok and he happened to be shot nine times. So six more times than me, which again, puts everything like really in perspective for me. Wow. Like you know, as cool as my story is, this guy got three times the bullets and he's good, you know? <laughs> yeah. But I, in talking with him, we shared our stories with one another and it was the same sort of thing. Whereas it lined up, everything seemed to be the same, but like the emotions we felt the night of the emotions we felt the nights after the things that we remember, it was like someone telling me my story yeah. and it was kind of in a weird way, but not that weird way. You don't feel alone in it, right? Yeah. Like you feel when you go through these sorts of things, it's really easy to feel like the world is against you because you feel like you're the only one who has to go through what you're going through. And it makes it that much harder to want to ultimately recover from everything because you just don't feel like anyone gets it. Yeah. And that could be the therapist you're talking to. That could be your friends who are trying to cheer you up. It's really difficult. And I, I think having that individual that you can connect with on a, a deeper level, even if they're not someone who was in your life for an extended period of time, just someone that also went through the same thing as you did. It just, it really reinforces every kind of belief that you've had and it, yeah. it validates the difficult times, but it also validates that it can be overcome. That's what I think is incredible. When you share your story and say that you were shot, but then it lit a fire in you that you were gonna, you're gonna keep going and all these things, people put it into what they would have done. If I got shot, I would maybe lay there forever or I wouldn't recover or things like that. 
because they want to relate, but yep. you never know what you're going to do until it happens to you. Yeah, it's true. It's true in a way. I think that sometimes having my friends in, at least in my unique case, if I was starting to stagnate, I think they would maybe yeah. question me a little bit. Like my dad was probably my biggest. So when I did physiotherapy, the first two months, I was there seven, seven days a week, three wow. to six hours, actually probably five to eight hours a day there yeah. all the time lived it. And this is actually like part of my story. I think that's the most amazing. And when I say I was probably the ideal specimen to get shot, like 100, I genuinely believe it because my best friend who's a physiotherapist was also waiting on his results from his national, I guess, physiotherapist association exam. Then it kept getting delayed because of the pandemic. So he couldn't take his exam. So he couldn't practice as a licensed physio in clinic. So he was off on CERB, like the COVID relief benefit. Yeah. And he had a gym in his basement and he just didn't have anything to do. So he heard everything. Like we were super, super close and he would just, we'd, I'd come over, I'd live at his house basically, just work out all day, every day. He'd stretch me out. He'd do his own little workouts on the side when I got a little bit better. And it's all we did. We lived in the gym and my dad, if I started to get a little bit complacent, there was days where I had like incredible nerve pain. If I had mm -hmm. just some really tough things going on and I'd be like, I don't know if I'm going to go to physio today. He'd be like, Oh, it's like, like, it was like a, I took this time off from work to, to drive you places. Like, yeah. you're not just going to waste a day of this. It's, it, it was like a non-negotiable. So yeah. I think it's important to be able to understand people's unique response patterns. But I think sometimes like the people who really care about you and if some random guy that I just met was telling me how to live my trauma, I'd be like, I'd yeah. be like, no, like, cut yeah. It out. Yeah. but having someone in your close circle who can hold you a little bit accountable to mm -hmm. it is nice. Cause you can also give them shit back and they won't take offense to it yeah. as much. So, yeah. But back to the physio things, I think this, there's some cool stories with this too. about two months in, like just to show how intense we were with it. My friends, he, basically he hadn't really done as much the summer as he normally would have because he was on Brandon duty. Like he, he was rehabbing me. So he missed out on a couple like weekends away, like those sorts of things. But by the end of August, I was physically able to move. And so he brought me to a cottage, like a cabin with his whole family. So we could still get our physio workouts done. It was just his family and me and like his big extended family, like probably 30 people, oh my um, God. like a family <laughs> retreat and me. And it was like an, an hour long ATV through the woods to get to this location. And he literally just strapped my like limp body onto an ATV and just drove me through the forest. But that's how dedicated we were to the physio and the rehab. Yeah. And where I realized that there are some gaps in the system with the, at least the physical recovery side of things was through that. Cause I was doing physio through my employer's like insurance plan, like once a week, which was way too few times yeah. for my, my, my injury. Their goal is to get you back to desk shape. It's not to get you back right. to functional, what you were before. Yeah. And they didn't really care about my well-being, So that is what it is, whatever. I've got my own beefs with insurance providers, yeah. but I understand that they have bottom lines. They fought us tooth and nail on, on as many of our claims as they could too, when mm -hmm. we did up the physio in the fall. But I saw the difference that it can make when you have a real physio who cares about you, who wants to push you through. And the thing is most private practitioners do mm -hmm. compared to the actual like OHIP. And again, that's not yeah. a knock on them. There's problems with, I think the structure of the system. But finding that person for me, who was, who was Frank, my physio, my friend for my grantee right now, Gavin, his guy, Tyler cares like they, they care so much about seeing that person recover. That's their top priority. So I yeah. was lucky enough to have that where I was like 
probably a year ahead in my recovery. Like the initial prognosis was maybe he'll be walking on his own in September. I was walking on my own by July 23rd, I think my birthday in July. So under a month where Frank was stretching me out, he literally took my crutches, said no more crutches the, for like the second day I walked said no more crutches. I walked back out to my car. My dad thinks this guy's a lunatic. He's, there's <laughs> no way we're giving this guy, we're going to another physio, right? Like we, we yeah. at this point it's Brandon's recovery is priority one. This guy's going to hurt him. Like he's crazy, yeah. yeah. but he took away those crutches and I started walking really quick. I didn't walk as much. I didn't spend a lot of time on my feet, but a week into having no crutches, I'd walk down the block to Starbucks and I'd walk like 500 meters. And then I called my mom to pick me up and she was never happy because she's like, I didn't know you left. Like you, that was like a <laughs> helicopter parented at that yeah. time. But I would just start doing stuff like that. And then you build your confidence back up and your physical traits start to come back. You just really need to push them. Yeah. And a lot of people aren't treated that way, but because I had that guy who really cared and I was bought in, I had those benefits. Like I said, I was running by, I think September, which was way before I was anticipated. I was skiing, doing all my sports in the winter. Like everything was wow. back. The physical recovery was tremendous. And that's where with the kids I'm working with now, I'm trying to at least give them the same opportunities. And I'm incredibly fortunate. And I see the, I see the shortcomings. I just yeah. want to do everything I can to fill that gap. Because when you're in your 20s and you go 20s, like whatever. But right now we've only really worked with kids in their 20s. When you're in their 20s going through something like that, like you should not lose your quality of life forever yeah, at the hands right. of someone else who you had no relationship with, yeah, right? Yeah. We've interviewed a lot of people who have been in accidents who have lost the ability to walk, but their drive and determination is incredible. I can't even make myself walk on a treadmill, but to see them like working nonstop to, to walk again and the amount of workouts and physical things that they're doing when they're probably in extreme pain is just incredible you're fighting for your life you're, exactly right? like it, yeah like I, I think the kid that we're working with now his name's gavin he's tremendous I, i've been a huge fan of the kid since uh, the kid he's like four years younger than me but uh, mm. of gavin since he, he reached out to me he got shot in the spine in a robbery in downtown Toronto. So basically what ended up happening was his brother, they're out after the bar one night and his brother gave a homeless guy 20 bucks because there's a lot of homeless people. I don't know what it's like in Calgary, but there's a yeah, lot of them in yeah, Toronto and yeah. Ottawa right now. And so he just saw this guy down on his luck. I guess he talked to him a little bit, gave him 20 bucks, like a super nice gesture. This guy saw him do that, robbed them at gunpoint and just started because he's like, I assume these kids have money and then just started beating the shit out of his brother. I guess Gavin stepped in to stop it. The guy shot him, hit him in the spine. So he made it through to the next day and he was told that he had a like a complete T9 fracture would never walk again. And then started doing some physio and they're like, well, maybe it's not complete because it's hard to tell with those things if they're a complete or incomplete fracture. Then he was re-diagnosed with an incomplete T9 fracture. So there was a chance that he walks again. It's going to be incredibly challenging. And when he was released from the hospital, he lost all his inpatient care. So he's got no physio for three months until he's eligible for outpatient care. So he lost all those benefits. So he reached out to me. We talked and he's like, telling me the same thing. He's like, all I want to do is recover. Like it's all I need. Like it's, I just need the time and the resources to do it. And like, I'll give it everything I have. And he's been doing that. We're lucky to get him in. We pay for two physio sessions a week for him at a new, like a neuro physio specialist. And then he's got two sessions a week that are covered by OHIP. Like the disparity in care is tremendous. Basically what he said is at the OHIP, like the outpatient care, 
they see him as a low likelihood for getting back to good health. So they don't give him the same sense of treatment. If he misses appointments, they just cancel them for the month. I think he was saying like, they just, it's ridiculous the the way that they structure it, but it's because everyone has these benefits, right? So whenever you go through an elective surgery, you're given X amount of physio sessions. So I had a friend who had a, a dislocated shoulder, got a surgery for it. And he was entitled to $400 in physio, which is like a month's worth of sessions. So everybody gets it. So the system is so clogged with all of these right. cases mm-hmm. that are typical cases that the people like Gavin fall through the cracks a little bit right. just because it's overflowed. If his physio goes on vacation, he doesn't get a replacement physio. He just misses the session. All yeah. of these kind of things start to, to compound. And I, I don't have the capacity to change the system. It's totally out of my control. But if it wasn't for our resources, he also doesn't get the same really quality of care there because to him, it, to there, I think he's more of like a number to them. Whereas in private mm-hmm. care, yeah. I think yeah, it's a little different. And again, I'm not ragging on the people who are giving care to him because I'm sure it's incredibly challenging to mm-hmm. go through the amount of cases they do in a day, yeah. but it's just different. So it's unfortunate to see, but I know how motivated he is. And I guess the long-winded kind of point to that is seeing same sort of thing, like you said, seeing how much he is willing to give to that pursuit of getting back. I understand it to a small degree because I, there was a point where I wasn't sure I was going to walk again. And almost all of my day, every day for almost like a year and a half, like I didn't work for, I quit my job when insurance told me I had to go back to work and spent all of my savings, just trying to focus on my rehab, but seeing how hard he is working right now to get back and seeing how the system's failing him a little bit it just, it motivates me like, like nothing else, like nothing else I could even explain. And I think it's tremendous to see the resilience of some of these people who go through these situations. Like I'd like to hope that the three of us as well, because it's remarkable what you can do when you go through hardship and you start to lose those fears to really push in yourself. Yeah. Is that what really triggered you wanting to start the charity? So we worked with another grantee before, but the charity, actually, that idea came to fruition pretty quickly into my recovery. Like I want to say the idea came up like within the first week in the hospital. Wow. It was super quick. And it was because I wanted to do something that mattered out of everything that I went through. It didn't actually start really making any traction. Like we incorporated it, I think in September or October that year. And then we really didn't start pushing it until the spring. For me, it was, I had access to all these resources, right? Like I had constant physio. And even if someone had three fifths of that treatment, they'd be able to recover so much better. And I was able to see it firsthand and realize how difficult it is for these individuals to get that quality of care. Because for me, it was a nightmare. Like I I didn't, I had to fight insurance tooth and nail. Like insurance really doesn't want to pay for anything. And there I'm talking like, I'm like making up shit so that they cover more things. I'm just like, (laughs) I can't go back to work. My doctor gave me a note to be off until December, which See, like at first, like to me, December seemed like a really long time. So I'm like, yeah. six months, but then you put it in perspective. It's like, man, like it, this injury took me like two years to recover from. Like I'm still, or maybe I'd say it took me about a year to fully recover from. And that was like five hour a day physiotherapy, yeah. right? Yeah. So that should have taken even longer, but they were pushing me to be back in December to stop covering my physio benefit. And then to sit me at a desk for eight hours a day. And I'm telling them everything. I'm like, I don't have a car and I live an hour away from the office and I can't take public transport because I can't stand up. Like just all these things. And they're like, yeah, they're finding ways around it. They're just instead of paying for the care. So I saw how little I think the system actually cares about the well-being of the trauma survivors and how it's more of they have their bottom line to meet. That's what they care about. 
And, yeah. and granted, not all insurance companies are like that. Like I've spoken to some amazing, incredible people in the insurance space who truly do care a little bit more than the major corporation that my company was using. But I know that too many people are falling through the cracks the way that I did. And too many people aren't getting that same level of care. So when I actually started the charity, it was two, threefold that we wanted to do. And the first is to work with physiotherapy. So like the physical rehab, right? What I was talking about. The second and the third I tied where we wanted to focus on the psychotherapy aspect where we got the resources for trauma survivors to talk to the right people, but also yeah. create a network of survivors who've been through the same sort of thing to mentor people through. It's so yeah. Gavin now, like I, I've got him in contact with quite a few people, but some people who are more like, like in the, the wheelchair space, right? Who've been through hardships that he's been through. And now he's at a point where he's starting to grasp it a little more he wants to pass that forward to other people. And that's what we've been able to successfully do as well, which is just connect people mm -hmm. to give them that kind of like mentor, like I had that I said, that was so incredibly important to me. So there was a lot of reasons really for it. I think at the core, it might sound a little selfish, but it was to find some purpose in my own situation. Mm -hmm. And really, I think make the most of the unique competitive advantage. And again, like I don't, I don't make any money off the charity. Like yeah. it's, yeah. It, it was more of a fulfillment thing. But then the more I started to connect with people, the more I realized there was like a desperate need for it. And yeah. it's just not, especially in Ontario, because I think in Calgary, like Alberta, other provinces, sometimes they, some provinces do have the victims kind of support benefits and there is more things in Ontario. We have nothing. Wow. So I was lucky enough to have my hospital stay and the surgeries paid for. I didn't have anything else. Like I, all of the wheelchair I used for the first week at a hospital it wasn't covered. The crutches weren't covered. Yeah. The like adjusted living stuff wasn't covered. And again, we're too small. Like I can't really cover that for everybody, yeah. but I want to help out in like the capacities that I can. Yeah. So that's like a, those four costs there, like that's like a thousand, 2000 bucks. Like it's yeah. a drop in the bucket, but physio costs, you want proper physio that you're looking at for two sessions a week, 12 to $20,000 a year. Wow. So wow. it adds up really quickly. And I saw how that's a lot of money for almost everybody. Right. Yeah. So I just, I saw an area that really needed some help and, and I tried to do my part to make a difference. Yeah. I find it, I keep going back and forth. Cause I'm like, it's great that you're, you've been able to do this and you've been able to start an organization to help other people but it's also unfortunate that you've had to do this because there are those gaps. We interviewed a girl, Brianna, she was in a car accident and she was in a wheelchair and it was the same thing. She had to fight for all these things through her insurance company. She's Canadian as well. And then she wanted to be able to walk again. So she had to actually fundraise money because her insurance company wouldn't bring her to this special rehab in order to help yep. her walk again. And it's, it's so frustrating that there are these things available for people, but they have to pay out of pocket or create their own fundraising. So there needs to be more awareness in this I space. Any one of us could be in this situation tomorrow. We could get in a car accident or get shot or something like that. I think if you want to even take it a step further, I think what really disappoints me about stories like, like these, right, is although they're good clickbait stories, but everyone just kind of writes them off as like an anomaly. It's like yeah, it just doesn't absolutely. really happen. So yeah you have like political leaders and people who have like a vested interest in determining where the taxpayer dollar goes. They don't really care to spend taxpayer dollars on this sort of stuff because it's not going to impact their votes. It's not going to be something that's overly popular because although it sounds really nice in theory, there is a lot of other issues out there that more people feel directly emotionally connected to Absolutely. who will rally around it. So that's why, at least in my individual case, I want to try to get as much awareness out there for what's happening, but also 
bring to light like the incredible need for all of this stuff. And I think there's a lot of good causes that there there is need for out there, but I think this one is right up there. I think with some of the most important because everybody that I've talked to going through this, almost I think almost everybody, if not everybody, went through these sorts of things at no fault of their own, right? Like yeah, they were yeah, directly disassociated and then had their lives changed. And mm-hmm. you know, that, that could ruin a lot of people. If you don't have the adequate resources, you're, you're just done. They're not just like one-offs that yeah. that happen yeah. and it's all oh, too bad. Like that one person's life was ruined, but what are we going to do? Yeah. Later yeah. To the anomaly? It's, it's not just the anomaly. Like yeah. it's way more prevalent than you think. And that's a voice that, that I want to bring to the table and really push for, for change. Wow. Wow. That's so scary. You know what it is, but I think you can't, you also can't live your life in like bubble wrap. I think that's, I've seen a lot of people who go the opposite way where I'll I'll say there was a point where I was like horrified to walk out my door, right? Like like I live like in the downtown core of Ottawa when I moved out on my own. So I moved back out on my own two months after everything. I was like, like scared to death. Like I'm I'm just leaving my apartment. And that's like when you're a larger 23 year old guy, like it shouldn't really be as big of a worry for you. Never had been previously in my life. Yeah. And at that point, like, I was horrified. I almost, I was at the gym one day and I swear I almost had a panic attack. Like the walls were closing in every, like I can't even really explain it. I, I was about to have like a full kind of breakdown yeah. because I was looking outside and was like assessing every car that I saw drive by thinking like, is this guy coming to finish me off? Is this guy? Oh and my gosh. I, like yeah. I, it, it can be really challenging because yeah. eventually you start to realize okay, it is safe to walk outside. I've walked outside 20 times and I haven't got shot yet. So this is great, yeah. right? Like, yeah, so yeah. A step in the right direction. And then eventually you walk outside 50 times and then a hundred times and it's okay, you know what? This is fine. And then you start to forget about it. Yeah. And that time is really the only true healer. And, and I did mine a little bit differently too. So I don't know how many of my TikToks you've watched, but I was a bit of a crazy person with that stuff. So like I started going for jogs in the middle of the night. Like I started getting my roommates to like pop balloons around me to simulate gunfire. Like I just, <laughs> I went like full into the deep end of exposure yeah. therapy, which Immerse yourself. Yeah. for what it's worth, I will recommend to everybody personally. Again, I'm not a doctor. Like I, this is just my personal unique experience that yeah. worked for me. I Absolutely. love that. Wow. Your outlook is so incredible and so infectious. And I'm so glad that you took what you went through and saw it as a blessing and really mm-hmm. repurposed it into changing other people's lives. Yeah, it's absolutely. a gift. If you're ever yeah. fortunate enough to go through a life altering trauma, no, no matter how hard they might be, they're tragic. I think like we talked about, it, it is something I wish that nobody had to go through. Yeah. But if you are, I don't want to say lucky, but like lucky, like lucky enough in a way to have to experience this totally altered state of being and thinking, being able to pull the lessons from it that you can, if you're able to successfully make it through something like this, it's incredible the kind of person that you can become. So I wish that no one had to go through it ever, like any sort of serious traumas. They break my heart to hear a lot of the stories yeah, that I do, yeah, to be honest. Absolutely. But if some, if you, if somebody's got to go through it, there's two ways you can respond. And I think figuring out how to find the lessons and the benefit of it is the only way, in my opinion, yeah. at mm-hmm. least. Yeah, absolutely. Thank absolutely. you so much thank for so sharing. Much. Oh, hey, th- thank you guys for giving me the platform. I always love passing forward some of the lessons that I've learned and sharing yeah. my story and what I'm doing. Yeah, for anyone yeah. listening too, yeah, it, at HTGR Canada is my charity's Instagram page. We don't use it as much as we should, but if you're looking <laughs> for more content, Peacock underscore Brandon is my personal Instagram and is my TikTok page as well. TikTok is where we 
talk most of the charity, the more the stuff that we're doing a little bit more. And if anyone wants to donate, check out htgrcharity.com. You can also see my stories, my grantee stories that we've worked with on there and learn a little bit more about all the great things that we do. I love that. Yeah. I'll put everything in the show notes and I'll tag you as well. All right. Well, enjoy the rest of your night. We will talk soon. I will. Thank you. All right. Bye. 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 Hey, Michelle. Hey, Carling. Brandon, thank you so much for being Absolutely. on our podcast. It's Crazy rare that we story. get a man. I don't know that we've had a gunshot story or a gun violence story before. No, I don't. Not that I can recall. Yeah, his whole outlook is just Ugh. so great. And the fact that he's trying to help other survivors of these traumas is so great. Absolutely. I think we realize this does happen in Canada, but there's not enough awareness and there's not enough support for people who are who are victims. So it's great that he's getting out the message and we are happy to share it. Yeah. If you have been thinking this whole episode, man, I need to get more Carling and Michelle. Follow us on all of our social medias. Yes. We're everywhere. Join our Patreon if you can. It's so much Mm -hmm. fun and we would love to have you. Leave us a review and I don't know, tell your friends about us. Download our episodes. All right. I am going to go take some Tylenol because I have a bit of a head cold and I don't feel my best. But then we're going to record a Halloween (gasps) Patreon episode today, which is so crazy because it's only the beginning of September. You got to be ahead of the game. Yeah, we try. try. All right. I hope everybody has a great day. Yes, we do. A great week. Yep. And we will see you guys later. Okay. Okay. Bye. Bye.